0: Come on, man. Blacks and Mexicans voted more, and Hispanics voted more for him than Romney. Romney was the ultimate white boy, wasn't he? I'm here in a town where I know powerful female Hispanics that love Trump. So, research people, or shush. You know, I don't talk about things. I'll give you a great example. I played in a band a couple of times in my life because my friends were tolerant enough to let someone who didn't take it as seriously as he should still play in the band. I played bass guitar. I wasn't very good. Was it did I try my hardest at every practice? Absolutely. But outside of practice, I almost never picked up the bass.
1: Folks, welcome inside the Paris Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live, download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, The Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, The Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today so I can interview uh, characters and people that were as important as the musicians in creating a warm sound that expanded people's ears in a sonic fashion I connected with this cat on uh, social new media uh, several years ago uh, I believe he's been following my work pretty well and uh, it's really an honor to welcome in Val Garay welcome to the Jake Feinberg show thanks Jake welcome glad to be here it's great to talk to you man I, you know I, I wanted to go back for a minute uh, and just talk to you about um, when I talked to uh, Cooch Korchmar a couple years ago I was uh, you know Sort of like into this whole thing that you know it's it's all about analog versus digital. One of the reasons you you know you you listen to albums like the Mamas and Papas, Seals and Crofts, uh a lot of this stuff. uh You know, it, it sounds so warm. And actually, Cooch said it's less about that than it is about mic placement. And I wanted you to talk specifically about your ability to, uh, your mic placement, how you learn to place mics around, uh, especially the rhythm section, specifically the drums and the bass.
2: Well, when I started out uh, years ago at the Sound Factory, I worked with a wonderful engineer, Dave Hassinger, who was kind of a pioneer in rock and roll in that he did all the early Rolling Stones records when he was a staff engineer at RCA, which. Most people felt that all those records were made in England, but they were all done at RCA Studios in Hollywood. You know, he did Satisfaction, Under My Thumb, 19 Nervous Breakdown, Get Off My Cloud, all the classic ones. and So he uh, left RCA because he got um, let go for Moonlighting as a producer and had a hit record with a, with a band on Warner Brothers. And so he, um, he took the money he made from that and he bought the Sound Factory in Hollywood and And that's where I first started trying to produce records and working with him as an engineer and realized uh, that wasn't going to work, so I ended up taking a job with him because he talked to me one day and said, you have great ears, why don't you come to work for me? So I did. So I started my $100 a week planning to get sandwiches job. And a year later, I had recorded and mixed my first hit as an engineer, so having a background with a guy who'd done not only Sam Cooke and the Rolling Stones and the Jefferson Airplane and all these amazing acts, he did a lot of big band stuff. And so I got a very broad um, stroke of how to mic probably everything imaginable from a drum set to a French horn. And in doing that, you learn my techniques that today, because kids pretty much build... And record and do everything on laptops in their house or their bedroom. Right. For the most part. Right. There's no training. There's no background. So miking techniques and people that teach you those things. You know, people like me can do that, but I don't do a lot of teaching. I do seminars from time to time around the country, but most of the time that kind of stuff doesn't get passed down. So all the younger kids in the in the digital world, as it were. Uh, don't really understand, you know, the meaning of great mic preamps and great microphones, and, and they don't have the budgets, you know. I mean, I record all my singers still on a Neumann U67 tube mic, and I just realized the other day I looked
1: online, and those things
2: <laughs> are selling for like $18,000. My gosh. I, I think I paid like 1500 for it new. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's kind of what the state of the art is, you know. Uh, it was always about the front end of a console, how good the the front end was and the preamps. And that's why most people never recorded on SSLs, because the front ends weren't very good. They always recorded on Needs or APIs.
3: And miking was the other
2: part of it. I can remember doing uh, an album with Linda Ronstadt years ago called Prisoner in Disguise, and I decided that I was not going to use any bottom EQ on any instrument throughout making the entire record. I was going to do it with mic placement. So if you go back and listen to that record, the bottom end is all natural. There's no bass added to any instrument or any microphone.
1: Can you explain to younger cats listening all over the world why you did that? Yeah, because I wanted to
2: do an album where I could create the bass end of anything based on mic placement. And it took longer and it was a lot more work, but it can be done. And, you know, it's so easy to reach for an equalizer and add 200 cycles or 400 or whatever you want. And and today when I watch kids work, you know, with plugins, because I'm constantly doing stuff when I'm mixing records for people, I'm constantly, you know, d- developing products for Waves, for API, for, you know, Apogee, all these companies, and, and, you know, I'm constantly comparing them to the old-school hardware stuff. And I would say 99% of the time the old-school hardware stuff beats the plug-in because it's warmer and bigger, and they're using things that are algorithms. So there is a difference. And, you know, it's also about the cost. I mean, I used to use five Telefunken and 251s on, on drum mics. I used two for overheads and three for tom-toms.
0: Well, 15000
2: a copy, um, that's $75,000 worth of microphones today. You know That's why all these companies are desperately trying to create these microphones that emulate the classic microphones. And I think so far the closest to all of them is Steven Slate, who I do a lot of beta work with as well. He's um, He's got a mic out now that was on the cover of Sound on Sound Magazine this last month um a mic emulation that with the exception of the 67 because i compared that as well they get really close you
1: know it's amazing talking to val gray here on the jake feinberg show val just uh you know you're kind of coming in and out a little bit so just speak as close as you can to the to the uh to the to the earphone to the mic but um I wanted to talk to you about authenticity. I mean, uh, Emil Richards, I'm sure you've done some work with him in the studios over over time. Uh, the percussionist, you know, he, you know. Yes. So it's like, you know, it's like he, he I was at his house in Lake in Toluca Lake a few years back. And, you know, he's like, you know, you got a singer now and, uh, you know, they, they sing a song and they, they, you know, they yell upstairs to the engineer, how do I sound? And the engineer said, oh, terrible, but don't worry, we can fix it. I mean can yeah you... I know
2: but that that's a common joke you know you do a take how is it sucks come on in you know let me ask uh... you but
1: I mean let, let's 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 juxtapose that to working with these seminal artists I'm just getting trying to get at authenticity and the idea that these guys were craftsmen and it, you didn't have the pro tools and the the the, the computers to fix all this stuff so Are we dealing with, is one reason there's sort of this, not just a sterile sound in the music, but also in the fact that really what you're, you're not even really hearing who this person truly is. And they're just not, they don't really have the chops to, to, to either sing or play. I I
2: find it. I'm sure there's a percentage of music made today in that fashion. I find it hard to believe that somebody like Christina Aguilera, who's a modern singer, is not a great voice. She is a great voice. There's a lot of great voices in popular music today that can sing their ass off. Um, the pitch correction thing, um, it, you know, if you're a great singer, I doubt seriously they do a lot of pitch correction on Adele. There's probably a note or two here and there where they they have to tweak it because today, when I listen to vocalists you know perform and I'm producing something, I listen for performance. Before, I used to have to listen for performance and pitch. so if they if they sing a phrase grade and it's a little out of tune, it's easy to fix and and it just saves a, an immeasurable amount of time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're any less of an artist, doesn't mean they're any less of a singer. I think the cookie cutter syndrome comes from if you listen to all these pop hits right now they're probably written produced by probably the same 10 people you know Bruno Mars versus you know Dr Luke versus whoever and they all kind of use the same samples they all kind of use the same programs and so that's where the the, the similarity and the and the cookie cutterness comes from uh, when you listen to records that were made years ago, and I'll give you an example, I was doing a Motels record, and I cut a song with her called Only the Lonely, and she did this great yodel at the end of the song on take number six. Well, and number take number two was the take I used, so it took me two days to fly that lick in, mm. trying to line up two tape machines <laughs> and get them to lock up <laughs> so that you could fly that in. That would be a cut and paste in three seconds. So that's where the thing has gotten a lot easier. In terms of the artistic angle and, and credibility as a singer, like I said, you know,
1: uh,
2: there's singers that you can't discount their, their vocal ability. And then I'm sure there's singers that are, you know, kind of marginal that they can pump up. The problem is, is that there is zero, and I say zero dynamic range in any records made today that everything is, has that's to be loud case.
1: you nailed it you nailed it yeah no dyna- yeah. where did is that how did we get from a point of understanding dynamic range well
2: because yeah. i think people started to believe that louder wins so i'll give you an example in my studio <clears throat> when i'm mixing stuff because everything i mix is in pro tools but I go through a manly Variable Mu, which is a sixteen-tube stereo compressor that that I run all the mixes through, so it warms everything up. I use all analog uh, front-end stuff, all API and and um, uh, BAE and Avidas preamp mic Prees and you know it's all high-end front-end stuff. Um, when you get when you get to the point where you're mixing something, you know the. the the dynamic range used to be on a, st- a standard plus four VU meter, you'd get up to zeros and plus ones. Now I have a button on my VU meters that I push in and it drops on 20 dB. And now I hit those zeros 20 dB hotter than it was 15 years ago. So that's how much louder things are recorded. And then when you master it, they make it even louder. So, it's crazy, but if you look at the waveform of the files, right? They're like uh, flat tops. They're buzz cut. They're, they're, there's very little light between the outer edges and the center mass because they're just compressed and recompressed. And then they go to radio, and they have three band compression, which <laughs> flattens it out even more. It's it's crazy. You know?
1: When when like uh, I mean, you were the engineer on Seals and Cross, Summer Breeze. Is that correct? Yes. So it was yeah. like, like okay, like, like I mean, Wilton Felder had just picked up the electric bass, but was he just playing, like, out of an amp? I mean, I guess what I'm also getting at is, like, I think you nailed it. I think Loud Wins now. But that song, I mean, the studio cats cooked the groove on that, but it wasn't yeah. like this, like, it wasn't overpowering the vocals. I mean, it, it, what, what were the cats? How much were you involved in... Like, can you talk about that section? I mean, that that session or one of those sessions. Like, was it was it less is more? Like, was there only a few mics over there? Was I mean, I just
2: no. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with when you had a rhythm section with players like that. Those guys were basically, you know, the jazz crusaders gone studio musicians. You know, it was (laughs) Wilton Felder on bass and Joe Sample playing keyboards and Louis Shelton was playing guitars and. And we were there. You, you had to create things because if you remember the song, there's a lick in the song that goes do 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 do, oh, yeah. and it's done with a guitar. But then we needed something more interesting, so we picked up a little tiny toy piano that's about you know 12 inches wide that little kids play that has this funny little chimey sound, and played that on it. And then that sounded a little fake, so then we took the Steinway and I put masking tape on the strings. And they doubled it with that, and that's where that sound came from. Well, you had to create those things. Today, there's a trillion plugins that you can use and effects that just create stuff that's, you know, like crazy. We just had to create it with a cardboard box and try to mic it in a, in a way that it would sound interesting, like I did in, in Traffic Jam with James Taylor and Russ playing drums, and we didn't want to use a drum set, so we used a tape box, and I taped the kick drum pedal to the floor and set the tape box up as a kick drum. <laughs> I want. I want. That, you, yeah. You um, know what? I could.
1: I could talk to you. I. I'd, I'd like you to tell me to me, because uh, a lot of people. Because we have a saturation of information. I, I whether you're a musician and you are seeking, or in your position as an engineer or a producer, audio production. Can you just? I think that this is so invigorating. Can you just talk about one of these times where you had to basically indigenously create something to get a sound as opposed to just using a plugin well
2: um like i just said but, you no, know you I gave two
1: examples i'm just saying like i want box, i know? want to hear more i want to and i want to know how the i also want to know how flexible the musicians were where you would put them in this position but they weren't it didn't it didn't throw them off their game no
2: everybody was always looking for something different and they weren't Opposed to trying anything,
3: you know, really.
2: I mean, when I think of Russ and Lee and Danny and, you know, all those James Taylor sessions we did. I mean, I remember Danny and James sitting in the in the um, side room at the sound factory. The control room was on the right side, had a room that was isolation and then the room in front. And I remember them sitting in there sort of just jamming. James was all set up because we were tracking some song. I don't remember what we were tracking, but he was sitting there with an acoustic guitar, and Danny was, and they started playing Handyman. And I'm listening to them over the mics, and Peter and I looked at each other, and we went, holy shit, that's such a great idea. We go running out and go, oh, my God, you guys got to do that. And they went, James goes, I'm not cutting another oldie. So that's where that started. And and that took like you know two days that you got to do this.
1: You pushed them, and, and they finally did it. And
2: it well, we, you know, eventually they did it, but, you know, it's funny people's reactions to things, you know.
1: How did you – I'm blown away. How did you connect with the Mizell brothers?
2: Well, that's an interesting story.
1: <clears throat> um,
2: Freddie and Fonts uh, were – well, Fonts was signed to Motown as a producer with um, – uh, Oh, what's his name? Um, they did a lot of the Jackson 5 stuff together. They were the corporation, Freddie bit... Parent. Yeah, yeah. Fonce and Freddie were signed to, to to Motown as producers and writers, and they were working on the Jackson 5 stuff. And uh, Larry was sort of out there on his own. And Larry and Fonce had both graduated from Howard University in Washington, D.C., which is kind of like the black version of Juilliard uh donald bird was a teacher at howard
1: no i know the back the backstory is is incredible i cannot believe well
2: donald bird yeah. donald Byrd, uh kind of godfathered them and brought them out to california and got them signed to barry gordy um well he got um he got font signed to, to barry gordy and Larry was sort of floating around. And so I started doing, at Donald's request, uh, Donald's jazz records for Blue Note. Uh, I did like three of them with, you know, Harvey Mason and all those guys. It was the beginning of that whole jazz fusion thing. And then Donald came to me and he said, Listen, I got these kids at Howard that are graduating this year that I want to make a group out of them and call them the Blackbirds. And I said, great. So they brought them out to California, and we recorded an album, and none of them sang. So Larry Fonts and this guy Larry Zaghidi and myself all went in the vocal booth and sang uh, Walking in Rhythm.
1: Get out. That's you on that? Me, Larry Oh my Punk this and, this is why I do and, my show. Uh, this is why I do my show, Gray.
2: So, Unbelievable. So then we finished that and that became a big hit and then uh then they were kind of sound factoryized with me. So then Larry came and said, Listen, I wanna do uh Taste of Honey and so then we did Taste of Honey and and um I worked with them for like five years. And then I left uh, the sound factory at that point because i'd built record one and uh so that's at that point i stopped working with them
1: so i, I and, mean yeah i mean this is can you talk about even <clears throat> like with the uh with the donald bird I, I see here george butler uh produced a couple of his other like there's a couple of albums where. Um, you know Ed Green, they're just like, I mean were you were you the type of guy there that where you'd say just um, start up a, start up a groove, start up a jam and and well, well start- no
2: it, I'll tell you I met Eddie Green when I used to do demos at the studio in Torrance. I can't think of the name of the studio now, but I used to cut demos there. guy would give me free studio time and I used Eddie Green on a, a lot of the demos that I was working on at the time. Eddie Green was probably the first drummer I ever worked with that was a rhythm machine. I mean, the guy was like, you could clock him with a stopwatch, and every beat was exactly the same distance apart. I mean, the guy was like a drum machine. I'd never heard anybody play like that. And that's the reason he did so many of those dates with Gene Page and Motown, because he, he just, when he played a groove, it was relentless,
1: you know? And it, but it didn't, it didn't sound like a machine, though. It was just because he really has a unique... Well, it didn't sound like a machine, but he played like one. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the,
2: the, the rhythm, his time was just impeccable. And he had the greatest feel because uh, he, he would hit his kick drum in perfect time. And his snare drum was as late as it could be without being late. And that's what made him feel so good. All the
1: why time. are you just waxing yeah. poetic? Why also on All Music Guide is it? It gives you credit for engineering, and remixing, but not th- three-part harmonies. I mean, you need that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. So I mean, I,
2: I, I mean, I, that was can you tell? Funny days when we used to do stuff, you know. and when, when you had to get something done, and how did you do it? I mean, none of the kids in in the Blackbird sang, you know.
1: Well, I mean, I've interviewed every Kilgo, I interviewed Kevin Tony and Donald Byrd. Kevin, yeah, you know, Kevin. I remember Kevin? Kevin, yeah, and, and you know, I'm looking at this and I'm just thinking to myself, this is, I mean, stepping into tomorrow. That's a that 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 album. I mean, those albums. It was this. I guess if you could talk to the audience about, in from a musical point of view, the what the Mizells brought in, because it seemed like it was a it was a fusing of jazz funk Mm -hmm. funk funk Mm -hmm. funk was not i guess was just beginning to become part of the lexicon i mean people used to say let's play funky blues they didn't say funk but it was that symphonic strings and vocals i mean can you talk about how they were adding to the vocabulary of music at that time
2: well they created a genre i mean that's why i said they started doing the jazz albums with donald i mean the they were the beginning of the whole jazz fusion movement they were responsible for that with Donald. Donald created that, you know, um, and they just had that sense about their, you know, music and production that was just amazing. What was what was really crazy for me was, I'm doing those guys in the evening and in the afternoon. I'm doing the Four Seasons, you know, December sixty three. Oh, what a night! And. The week before that, I'm doing J.D. Souther's solo record. Unbelievable, and, man! And the week before that, I'm doing you know uh, Neil Diamond. It's it was crazy, you know the the and 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 Marvin Gaye. I did the Trouble Man record with him.
1: I just saw that record this morning. <laughs> this is, yeah. I mean, so uh, <laughs> this is mind blowing to me. You, you talk about, I mean, th- I love these cats so much. Uh, I you know. Can so you talk about the funniest experience you had working with uh, Sklar and and Kunkel. I mean, those guys were th- they're mensches in so many ways. They're mm-hmm. decent guys, and and yet, you know, and they are because of the reputations. They're off touring prodigiously with, you know, you know, with their, with 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 these guys now um, uh, on the road, and and but they were. I mean, would you? was it the type of thing where you would see Sklar and Kunkel and then it would be uh, Ron Tutt and then it might be David Kemper and then it might, I mean, D- Ed Green. I mean, how many different drummers would you see in one day? <laughs> or would it just be Kunkel all day? You know, it,
2: it, it, well, it depended on the project. See, like if I was doing James Taylor, it would be Kunkel every day. If I was doing um, just session dates, Gene Page would bring in Gene Pellow, then he'd bring in Ed Green, then he'd bring in Ron Tutt, then he'd bring in
1: Earl Palmer.
2: Earl Palmer. I mean, it was just a. I got to work with the greatest drummers and players in the history of the business, you know. Just that time, right time of the, you know, being at the right place at the right time. The Sound Factory had signed a, a deal with Motown because when they moved here from Detroit, they didn't have a studio. So they signed a three year deal. We tracked all the Motown records for three years at the Sound Factory. So that was one of the clients that I had
1: wow so uh, this is fascinating to me so you were literally in the pocket when motown moved to to the west Coast. oh yeah
2: well i do three sessions a day 10 to 1 2 to 5 uh with gene page and you know it was you know bobby Humphrey's on percussion or no uh, bobby hall bobby hall on percussion and and um joe sample on keyboards and then the guitars were uh, Ray Parker, um, Dean Larry Park,
1: Carlton, Dean Parks, Dean, Park. uh,
2: Dean Parks, um, Wawa Watson, and <laughs> um, what was the other guy who I used to love?
1: Uh, I should know this too. It'll it'll right. cal- it'll come. <laughs> but there
2: was like five five first call guitar players that were always there. Uh, Gary Coleman would play percussion. Bobby Hall would play percussion. Um, Wilton would play bass. Uh, it, it was just amazing. Rhythm section It's just They could play anything
1: Um, Can you talk a little bit about A a current project Or an inspirational project You've had this in 2016
2: Well I'm working right now On a couple of things I'm working right now With a um, Singer songwriter Who came to me Through my dear friend John Barrick And John Barrick is A a world-renowned manager who is Irving Azop's partner for all these years, and uh, John still manages Journey and REO and all these bands. And this girl was a, a you know, struggling singer-songwriter, and um, her father met Irving because her father's a famous golf teacher. Her name is Dean Reimuth. He coached uh, Mickelson's first 15 years of his career. So, he got to Irving cuz Irving's a golfer and Irving set her up with Rock Mafia. So she was in Rock Mafia through 3 years of college that she was going to and she got a good background in songwriting. <clears throat> and then they brought her to me and asked me if if I would work with her and she's an amazing writer and and an artist. She's going to happen. She, you know, the guy at Universal Republic signed her and um it's it's you know, she's 21 years old and has real talent, you know. So it's, you know, doing stuff like that from the ground floor, um, uh, it's an exciting thing to be able to do.
1: You said she was... And I'm doing all yeah.
2: the other stuff that I normally do, you know, and I'm working with an artist in Northern California named Carmel, who's a wonderful. You know, I started with her writing about three years ago, and she's developed into a really good songwriter and singer, and, and um, you know, keep going. Mixing this, mixing that, and I work all day, every day.
1: Um so uh can you, you talk about your concept of of leadership in the studio you talk about a time when you were uh especially with people you may be i'm not even talking about genres of music but uh, you don't have to mention names but a time when you were how you dealt with adversity in the studio when you were younger and didn't necessarily have your own individual voice you weren't totally secure with your individual voice how you overcame it how it made you a stronger producer engineer audio producer Well, I always just forged forward. Uh, I would never
2: um, accept no for an answer, and I would never let anybody beat me down. I just kept moving forward. Uh, I figure if you're a moving target, you're harder to hit. And um, at some point, I gained enough momentum and enough knowledge to where uh, I knew that I could succeed. The next key element is finding the right artist and i was really fortunate in the sound factory in those days to have been hooked up with all those amazing people i mean it just didn't stop i mean there was a year when i did 22 albums and in that year i think i had 13 number one singles so you know when you have that kind of artistry uh it's pretty hard not to make it happen you know
1: could you give an example of a time when you wouldn't take no for an answer
2: well, probably in the early seventies when I was a struggling singer songwriter and and trying to make my way in the music business in Hollywood, you know the kind of rejection that you'd get was endless, and I just didn't accept it. you know I just went, yeah right, and moved on <laughs> and until I found a path of least resistance um uh, some people get discouraged some people end up doing drugs and disappear and you know who knows but i just never stopped and haven't since you know
1: you were at one time a singer song you you oh yeah i was signed to Clive davis as an artist in a band
2: uh i you know came out of san francisco and was in a band up there and then one of the guys that i one of the guys that i worked with was ron elliott do you know who he is um, he I... had a band called the Bo Brummels
1: Okay, I know Bill Elliott I don't know Ron Elliott Go
2: ahead you know, Ron Elliott had a band called the Bo Brummels in the 60s Which is which was a, a big American band that Everybody thought was an English band They had a bunch of hits that he wrote And then as that band was breaking up He asked me to uh, You know, if we could put a band together So we did And it was uh, with myself, Ron Elliott A kid named Keith Barber Who had, had a big hit called Echo Park and um, a drummer named Don Francisco, and we got signed by Clive to Columbia Records. Uh, the band was called Pan, and um, T A N. Yeah, and and the single came out. The week the single came out was going through the roof, and then Clive got fired.
1: I cannot this is already the, i mean that is mine I didn't know that I had no idea you were in this oh
2: yeah, I was signed as a staff writer at April Blackwood for three years. then I went to Warner Chamberlain and then I went to uh you know the Warner Brothers conglomerate, so I had a background in songwriting and singing. I'm a guitar player and were you were you
1: were you uh were you part of the the folk scene I mean were you out there with oh yeah with I mean, I was, yeah go. Ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean I used to go see those guys play at the um, Ciro's on Sunset in 1965. Dylan would get up and sit in and play harmonica.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean I even like you said you were from San Francisco. I'm trying to get it like the, you know, uh the I
2: was up there, you know, the the the, the place to play in the city was on
1: Broadway. The, uh, the, on, the, on Bro- the on Broadway. Yeah, the strip Did you do the strip clubs?
2: No, well they weren't strip clubs in. It was like Tom Donahue, do you know who he is? Absolutely. Yeah, he was the guy
1: that yeah, did Yeah, well, he yeah.
2: had a club on, on Broadway called Mothers, and that's where the Spoonful would play. That's where the Bo Browns would play. That's where everybody would play. And Paul Revere and the Raiders, and there was all these clubs on Broadway that everybody was all, was all rock acts at the time in the 60s, and before the Carol Dota on the piano's topless thing started. Yeah, see, th-
1: those are my poses all- That's when those cats were playing 20-minute jams over the top, and they were calling out Duke Ellington tunes. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Did so, you yeah. so then I moved back down to Hollywood in around sixty six and um that's where I was from that point on.
1: The uh I just want to for the record with the Mizells, uh I mean with the Blackbirds, you would go up to uh fantasy studios Up uh, in San Francisco to do that?
2: Um no, well I, I went there one time, but most of those were all done at the Sound Factory.
1: What is the Sound Factory today? it's still there it's called the Sunset Sound Factory it's on Selma right and and how much activity but that's where we did yeah Go we ahead. did
2: all those records I did all the James Taylor records there I did the first you know six Linda Ronstadt records there I did you know 3 Neil diamond records there I did all the Donald's records there and all the Blackbirds both um, the the two albums that were hits I did at the Sound Factory uh, Andrew Gold, I did there. The Four Seasons, I did there. Um, I can't think of them all, but th- they were all done at the Sound Factory in Hollywood.
1: Did you do the? Did you work with the the section on their albums? Oh yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Those, are, th- those albums have been a catharsis. Oh, in... did
2: I cut their stuff? You mean no? Yeah. I worked with the section as musicians. Not, I never did any of their
1: records. You never did any of the records, but you just did it. No. What if if if. When you look at the section or you look at, uh, you know, uh, Carl Radle and, and, and Tut, you know, Tut, Tut to me is like an inspiration. The guy was like, you know, g- basically counted out, discounted on a tryout and then he got El- the gig with Elvis. But it's like, if you were going to talk to cats, l- stepping back from it, what makes a great section? Well, <clears throat> usually historically
2: speaking a drummer and a bass player that have played together for a long time is what usually makes a great rhythm section so when John Guerin was playing uh, with you know um, Wilton Felder mm-hmm. that was like you know they'd played together a million times or when Russ was playing with Lee they'd played together a million times um, that's usually what creates a great feeling rhythm section: the bass, uh, the bass player, and the drummer.
1: What it? What? But I guess here's the question: What? What? With the propensity of? I mean, let's face it. Russ was in a band. Lee, by the way, did you know Lee when he was in Wolfgang in that band? No, no. You, you never crossed paths with him. Do you remember mm-hmm. the, when was the first time you actually met those cats? Was it? Was it in the Sound Factory?
2: Yeah, yeah, way back. Uh, Probably
1: nineteen seventy two I guess my the better question is those cats had a lot of opportunity to feel together they the propensity of them, the the sessions they had they'd come in before the sun came up they'd leave before the when the sun went down if 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 you're talking to younger cats who don't have the ability to play on the bandstand as much and they can't mm-hmm. get they can't get in the studio, how can you still develop that feel uh
2: they do it. Uh, I use a drummer all the time, Victor Andrizzo, who plays with a bass player, and they must do 10 sessions a week. And, you know, they play in Colby Colley's records or, you know, every probably 70% of every hit record that came out of Hollywood in the last two years, they play together all the time. They're both in their middle 40s, and they're both amazing musicians, and they just have that feel.
1: It's hmm. interesting stuff. Uh, final thought for you, if you could just uh, – probably didn't ever work with the Cat, but uh... – did you ever uh did you ever get off on Mose Allison? He passed away.
2: Uh yeah, and you know it's funny you should mention that because Mose wrote Seven Son." Oh
1: yeah.
2: And it was always one of my favorite songs and I went and saw him at the bakery about 5 years, 4 years ago. <laughs> I was still amazing. The bakery's a jazz club over on oh, Venice. Right? Um, sure.
1: Sure. Well, yeah. was the, the bakery's in is that's a jazz club where?
2: over, um, in, um, um, near Venice on, uh, Venice Boulevard in that old, uh, uh, what do you call it? That big complex there that was, uh, that was a bakery or something, part of a bakery in the club. The bakery is in that complex.
1: I was going to say, uh, jazz club. yeah, cause the baked potato was a whole, did you ever play the baked potato? Oh no, the baked potato. I've been to there a million times. I know Don Randy for years. The ran- Well, then that, a- that was also where, uh. Joni wound up finding the uh, LA Express. You must have worked with all those. Guys. Well,
2: the LA Express was John Guerin, and and that's how, you know, John got hooked up with John played drums on Summer Breeze.
1: Yeah, John Guerin was playing like modal jazz with Roger Kellaway too. I mean, the guy was yeah. fierce. Brilliant. Brilliant.
3: brilliant. But yeah,
1: brilliant. no, I mean, he was he he was a troubled cat though. He didn't he, he didn't have it easy though.
2: Yeah, I know. I worked with him a lot believe me he was on a lot of sessions of louis shelton's
1: i mean just for just for the record i was born in 1978 so i mean you know this to me is like a cathartic kind of thing and it's it's the opportunity to talk to people who were making real music made by real musicians and i know that you uh i know you got other things to do val but i i really would like to do part two with you man i feel like we i just we're just getting started here all right. Well, let's talk about
2: that. I'm not opposed to that. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. Much love. Right, man. Much
1: love to you, man. Good. Good to hear you. Thank you. All right. Okay. Later on. Bye. Yeah. It's a legendary uh, producer and engineer uh, Val Gray um, was able to connect with him uh, via new media, and uh, you know he, the Sound Factory. What else do you want? To, what else can you say? I mean, the guy was literally engineering the heaviest. Uh, sessions at the heaviest time in music in our history. We'll be back with Mike Maynardi at the top of the hour. For now, we'll rejoin the Jim Parisi show.
0: Said during 60 Minutes on the right, most commented on article of John Stewart. A little Mos Allison first.
1: Rest in peace, Mos.
3: Talking about the seven sun in the whole round world there is only one and I'm the one Yes, I'm the one I'm the one, I'm the one, the one they call the seven sun I can tell your future, it will come to pass I can do things for you, make your heart feel glad Look in the sky, predict the rain I can tell when a woman's got another man I'm the one, yes I'm the one I'm the one, I'm the one, the one they call the seven sun. can talk these words that will sound so sweet they will even make your little heart skip and beat i can heal the sick raise the dead and make the little girls talk out of their head i'm the one yes i'm the one i'm the one i'm the one the one they call the seven son. i'm the one i'm the one the one they call the seven son.
0: from the daily show Hillary would be president I mean real people